Welcome to our study of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Uh, as usual, before we get started, uh, I want to share an announcement with you. So you may remember that where we are, I'm going to show you this graphically in a minute, but chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation are called the Tribulation, and we are right in the middle of that time period in our lesson. And so next week, because it is spring break in all the schools around here, we don't have any programming. So we won't have this class or any of the classes next week. It's difficult to get children's volunteers when everybody's out. So we'll take a break. But that really works out well for us because if you happen to remember the first half of the tribulation, which was pretty gruesome, okay, the next half is called the great tribulation and things really ramp up. And so I felt like you needed a breather before to prepare yourselves for the great tribulation. So we won't meet next week, but the week after, boy, things kick into high gear. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to gather together and study your word. I'm grateful that we, and this is a privilege we don't take for granted, are free to practice our faith in this country. And I'm grateful for it. I pray for the leaders of our country Father, that you would turn their hearts toward you and that this nation might be a beacon of truth and of justice in the world. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as is normal, there's the number for questions during class. It's on your handout online. It's on your handout here as well. So that's uh, your number for questions. And if you'll text those in during class, we'll try to answer as many of those as we can. So we are in moving through the book of Revelation and there are four major views and I know you're thinking, I bet I can recite these by now. Good. Because one of the things that I think makes the book of Revelation difficult is if you just dive in, it's like jumping into a forest without knowing where the paths are. And so there is more than one way and I mean more than one orthodox way. I'm not talking about non-Christian, non-biblically sound points of view. There are four major ways that throughout the last 2,000 years, Christians have understood the book of Revelation. And one is, and they're oriented around a simple question. When do these events happen? Now, at the very beginning, you have letters to seven churches from Jesus, chapters one through three. Chapters 20, 21, and 22, most people think are in the future. We'll talk about that when we get there. But the period of the tribulation, the period of the judgments, remember we've had seven seals, we've had seven trumpets, and there are going to be seven bowls. So three sets of seven judgments of God in the world. And so the question becomes, when do those things happen? So a preterist view, and these names came from various places, but basically says all of these things are happening early. And a historicist view, I'll show you on a chart in a second, says all of these things are happening through the whole church age. And a futurist view says, no, all of these things are happening in a seven-year period yet to come in the future. And then symbolic or idealist says, actually, these things are true, but they've been true more than once. They're, they're even truer than you think they are and that they've happened many times. So let me show you a couple of charts that I hope will help a little bit in, <clears throat> excuse me, figuring out when this is. This is a typical chart of history from a futurist point of view, okay? So 
here we are in, let's just call it approximately 30 AD. You have the cross of Christ. Almost all futurists believe that there will be a seven-year period of chapters four through 19 is in this period in the future, that there's a rapture, most think before that period, and at the end of that period, Christ comes again. Forget the millennium, we'll get to it. We don't wanna complicate this more than necessary. By the time we get there, it won't be complicated. So we are living in the church age, the time between the first and second coming of Christ. So futurists would say that this is the time period of chapters four through 19 and we are right in the middle. We are 1,260 days or three and a half years into a seven year period. Make sense? And so what we talked about in our last lesson was after the seven seals were open and all these cataclysmic things happened and after the seven trumpets were blown and the cataclysmic judgments on the earth and then there were the two witnesses who came in chapter 11 and began to preach during this period of tribulation. And we talked about what happened uh, with them, that that's all happened right here and we're halfway through the tribulation, okay? That's a futurist point of view. That probably is pretty familiar to most people in the West. Different map, forget the millennium piece. So this is a view of history where you have 30 AD, you have the cross, and at some point in the future, you have the second coming of Christ. And in between, this is called the church age, and it's the whole time period. So if you're a preterist, you think that shortly after the resurrection of Christ in 70 AD, and I'm painting with a broad brush, I know there are different flavors of preterism, so don't, don't uh, send hostile emails, but let's just say it happened at 70 AD. They would, the preterists would say all these things talk about basically the fall of Jerusalem. It's a very interesting point of view and could be true. Uh, then the historicists say actually this whole time period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, chapters four through 19 are kind of a little coded time period through history. For example, the two witnesses kind of in the middle, who are coming to proclaim the word of God, happened around 1600 AD. And that the bad guys in the book of Revelation is the Catholic church, not necessarily Catholic people, but the structure of the Catholic church. And let's face it, those Renaissance popes were, were not good guys. Everybody would agree with that. And then you get the Protestant Reformation, right? So they come and they they uh, protest the practices of the Catholic Church at that time. And so the two witnesses are the faithful Christians who are trying to do what's right and the Catholic Church is oppressing them. That's a historicist point of view, okay? Symbolic point of view says, during this whole church age, actually, these things have happened more than once. And these things are recurring truths that there have been people oppressing God's people, uh, governments, could be ancient Rome, it could be Attila the Hun, it could be 
any number of evil kingdoms have been oppressing the truth and God's people and that this actually has happened, but it's just actually happened a lot of times. Is that helpful to you? That's kind of the basic view of what's happening through history because I'm gonna refer to a couple of these views when we're in the middle of this. So, last time we talked about the two witnesses and they come and if you're a futurist, in the middle of the tribulation, they show up and they begin to preach the truth. This is what's happening, they said, and the reason it's happening is you need to repent. They are a Moses and an Elijah figure coming to turn people's heart back to God. And they are killed by the rulers of the world who hate the message. And then three and a half days later, they leave them laying in the street and rejoice and they rise up, come back to life and go up to heaven and everybody's like, uh-oh. And so that ushers in the second half, the great tribulation. So chapter 13, or excuse me, chapter 12, is a pause, and it's going to set up what's gonna happen the rest of the story, but in order to set up the rest of the story of tribulation, we need to go back and trace something really important that's been going on all the way since the beginning of time. So I wanna take you back before we start chapter 12 and give you a little bit of background. So let's go back to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter one and two, God creates the earth. Everything is good, creates man and woman, creates humanity, everything is very good. Chapter three, you see the fall of humanity. So the serpent, who is Satan, comes into the garden and tempts them and basically says, God is lying to you. He just doesn't want you to be as powerful as he is. You don't need to do what God says. You can be your own master. You can be your own God. That's essentially what he said. And so they decide, okay, I'll eat of this fruit and I'm not gonna die. I'm gonna become like God. Well, it turns out the serpent's a liar and they do die. Death enters the world. They were never, Adam and Eve were not intended to die. Death was not a part of the world until the rebellion. And so then God comes and finds them and says, what have you done? And God issues some judgments for this disobedience. And you may remember that he speaks to the man and he said, cursed is the ground because of this. And to the woman, you will have pain in childbirth, etc. But listen to what he says to the serpent or the dragon, or Satan. All those words are the same thing. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's the part that I want you to pay attention to. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring, he, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This little passage is really interesting, but it's very important to our story. We're going all the way back to the very first book of the Bible to connect it to the very last book of the Bible. So what is this saying? This is commonly called, I mean, it's got a name, it's called the Proto-Evangelion the first picture of the gospel. In other words, it says there's going to be a descendant of this woman, Jesus, the Messiah, and 
you will have enmity between you. In other words, you, Satan, are gonna hate humanity and humanity is going to be in conflict with you. And one of her offspring, Jesus, is going to bruise your <clears throat> head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, you will have this dilemma. And this sets up a story that runs all the way through the Bible and a way of understanding history and a way of understanding who we are, why we're here, and what does life really mean. That God created us for good. He created us to be very good. We have marred that image of God in us with our sin, with our rebellion against God. Satan is at war and he says, I want to be God and I will get these people to serve me. They will rebel against you and they will serve me. Now I want you to remember at this point, Satan is doing his work on the earth. And this sets up the idea of a conflict. And this is what the essence of the Bible is. With all the wars and all the conflicts that happen, the essential is that God and his people are in conflict with Satan and his servants. Make sense? Okay. Hold that thought and let's go to Revelation because Revelation chapter 12 is going to summarize that and then it's gonna go on from that story. So Revelation chapter 12, after the two witnesses, now think about this. This is not talking about the tribulation continuing. This is a pause and it's gonna set up something, a truth that runs all the way through the Bible. A great sign appeared in heaven. This is John seeing a vision. He goes, this is a great sign. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So the first thing I want to point out to you is you've got the woman in Genesis three, and it's talking about her offspring and talking about enmity with Satan. Now here, he sees this vision of a very specific woman. <clears throat> I mean, not too many women you know are clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. I mean, that's the way my wife looks most of the time. But I'm just saying to you, this is a very specific woman, but remember that, and she's pregnant and she's about to give birth. So who is this woman? This is a vision and it's representative of something. I wanna take you back because this, if you've read the Old Testament, particularly if you've read the book of Genesis, this is probably very familiar to you. Certainly was very familiar to them. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 37, this is way back in time. This is the story about Joseph. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you have Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. And he, as a young man, was preferred by his father. And you may remember the story. If you don't, read Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. Unbelievable story. And, but he had a dream. And he says to his brothers, <clears throat> I had a dream. And behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And my sheaf of grain arose and stood upright and yours all bowed down to mine. And they all get mad saying, are you really saying you're gonna reign over us? Is that what this dream is about? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
But then he dreams another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and your brothers and I come and bow down before you? But his brothers were jealous, but his father kept the saying in mind. So what is this dream? You have the sun and the moon, his parents, and you have he's a star and his 11 brothers are stars. Now, that is essentially a symbol of the nation of Israel. Jacob, other name is Israel, has 12 sons. They have a lot of kids. Those are the Israelites. The children of Israel are literally the children of Israel, right, of this man. So a woman who's got the sun and the moon and 12 stars, that sure brings to mind the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, right? So that comes up. Now, if Israel is pregnant, stay with the imagery, and about to have a child, who is that? Think back to Revelation, or back all the way to Genesis. That's the Messiah. The Messiah is intended to come out of the nation of Israel. One of the reasons that God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and worked through those people was that the Messiah would come from that group of people. So the woman that he sees is flashing back to the whole Old Testament. And here is Israel, and out of Israel is going to come the Messiah. But it goes on. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. So you see dragon, you think serpent, you think Satan. And he describes this dragon. He has seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads he has seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and kept them to the earth. So we know who the woman is. This clearly appears to be flashing back to the idea, the whole Old Testament, all swooped up in this one little vision that God chooses these people and nurtures them for 1,400 years and out of this group of people comes the Messiah. Then he sees this dragon. He's a great red dragon. He has seven heads. So here's kind of a code that you'll see all through apocalyptic literature and certainly all through Revelation. Heads are authority. And a diadem, and I appreciate the ESV translating this diadem instead of crown because there are two words that are used for crowns in the book of Revelation. A diadem is like a kingly crown. It represents earthly authority. So this dragon, now what does seven mean? Seven heads, seven is the complete number. This dragon has the audacity to suggest that he has all authority and all power. That's something that would be attributed to God not to Satan, but Satan thinks he is God. And he has seven heads and seven diadems. 10 horns, horns are strength. Always uh, military power, uh, strength, uh, the ability, earthly power usually is what it's talking about. And 10 is just the number of creation. In other words, I am God and power over all things and I have all earthly power. Well, is that true? No, that's actually not true, but that's what the devil thinks about himself. 
And so that's what the dragon is. This is Satan in his real guise. He is a rebel against God who wants to be God, believes he has all the authority, he's gonna make all this world worship him, and he has all earthly power. He's working through Rome and Hitler, and he's working behind every evil oppressive thing that happens in this world. So he has all this power, the 10 horns. Interesting little uh, detail that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This is, there are a lot of ways to understand this, but I'm gonna tell you the way that most people understand it is, and this is where this comes from, is when Satan rebelled against God, think about all the stars in the sky as angels, the servants of God, and a third of them rebelled with Satan and they were cast out of heaven. And so Satan, we're gonna see that in just a minute, ends up on the earth with all these demons. Demons are rebellious angels and they are here as rebels against God and Satan has set himself up to be worshiped by them and worshiped by the people that are gonna be his slaves on the earth. And so you get this picture of Satan and his people. You get this picture of God working in history to redeem everybody through the nation of Israel to give birth to the Messiah. That makes sense? This is a recap, isn't it, of what the biblical story has been. <clears throat> now war arose in heaven. This is a flashback. This is when Satan is rebelling against God. There are different opinions on when this happens, but let's see what, what actually happened. Now war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels, who's Michael? Michael, you know from the book of Jude and the book of Daniel is an archangel, a ruling angel. He is an angel, a servant of God, a faithful servant of God, and he's commander over a number of angels. And so when Satan rebelled, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, Satan. The dragon and his angels fought back. There was literally war in heaven, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down. Who is that great dragon? The ancient serpent from the garden who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the original liar. He was thrown down to earth and all of his angels were thrown down with him. So you get this story of where did Satan come from? Who is Satan? Obviously a rebellious angel, fought against God, wants to rule in heaven, defeated by Michael and his angels and cast down to the earth. And now it sets up what's gonna come later in the book of Revelation. Now, when did this happen? That is an interesting question. Some people think it's happening now, in the middle of the tribulation. <clears throat> Whether you think that tribulation is going on through all of church history, right, if you're symbolic or historicist, or if you're a futurist, it's gonna happen in the middle of the tribulation. I don't find that compelling, personally. I don't usually weigh in with opinions, but I really don't want you to get wrapped around the axle about that. The predominant point of view is either at the cross or before 
our time began. And I'll just tell you, it makes the most sense to me to think about this battle as a flashback to primordial times. If you think about, say, now there are gonna be people that argue with this, but this is probably the simplest way to understand it. I think it's probably the correct way, that's my opinion. But if you think about it, when you open up in Genesis, you have Satan in the garden, working his will against humanity. Go fast forward a little bit, and in the book of Job, remember it opens and God says, Satan, the accuser, came before God and God said, where have you been? He says, I've been going to and fro in the earth. And so probably the predominant view is this rebellion happened before Genesis chapter, chapter three when he shows up in the garden. So Satan has been cast out onto the earth and the story of humanity from chapter three of Genesis all the way till the end of Revelation is Satan and his servants, including us when we were slaves to sin. Jesus said, Satan is the ruler of this present world. Uh, the book of Ephesians says, you know, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses when you used to live in the way of this world and follow the ruler of the powers of the air. It's saying we too used to be enslaved to sin, to Satan. So Satan has been ruling and fighting against God and God's people. Now in this particular story, you have, I'll show you a great picture while I tell you this, but in this particular story, What's happening is it, this has now gone back in time and reminded us of the biblical story and filled in some of the blanks. And now you look at the Old Testament and you say, this is the story of Satan trying to conquer the world and God starting out with one guy, Abraham, and then a group of people. And ultimately, here comes the Messiah, the one who's actually going to defeat Satan on the cross, the resurrection of Christ, defeats Satan. And so what happens then in this vision? We're now back to the vision. You have the woman, you have Satan, he's had war, he's cast down, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That is talking about the Messiah. In the Psalms, in the Old Testament, the Messiah is described as the one who will come rule with a rod of iron. What does that mean? All it actually means is he's gonna have the true power. He is the true ruler of this world. So she's giving birth to the Messiah. Dragon says, I'm gonna stop that from happening. I'm not gonna let the Messiah get, even get started. I'm gonna kill him as soon as he's born. Does that bring any story to mind to you? Yeah, think Herod. This is Christmas story. Baby gets born, Herod tries to kill the baby and kills all the kids under two years old and would easily have killed Jesus had he not fled to Egypt. So you see, I want you to connect this. This is not just a metaphysical story that happens all in the spiritual realms. The spiritual realms and the earthly realms, according to the Bible, are so intertwined, is that Herod was a human being who was evil, who decided to kill all these kids to preserve his own power. He'll kill as many babies as he needed to. That's true. 
and Satan is working through him. I'm not talking about demon possession. I'm talking about God saying that the things that you see here is not all that's going on. Satan is using the evil forces of the world, lying to you, tempting you to turn away from God, and then that spiral just gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? So the idea here is God, Revelation is reminding you that this story is not just all happening in a spiritual realm, it's not all just happening in earthly realm. These things are intertwined, and the whole biblical story has been about redeeming us. That's why early Christians fought with a philosophy called Gnosticism. And here's what Gnosticism said. This is gonna make sense now. So if you ever hear this in a sermon or something, you're gonna go, oh, I totally get this now. Gnosticism was not a Christian idea. It basically said, your body's bad, it's temporary, it's gonna die, but there's something inside you that's gonna live forever. And so it led to all kinds of terrible things that Christianity does not believe that. But it came all together. And it said, your body doesn't matter, only this spirit thing inside of you does, and it's hopefully, if you're gonna be a good person, it'll go on to higher realms. All right, so that merges with Christianity, and what, what do they basically say? This life and the way you live it doesn't matter. You just need to be, have your soul right with God, but what you do with this body doesn't matter. And what was happening? Well, early Christians that believed that said, well, you can just do sexual immorality, you can do anything you want with your body because it's just your soul that matters. Frankly, I'd argue that there are modern day Gnostics, aren't there, that would say, well, as long as you're right with God, it doesn't really matter what you do. That's not true because in the Bible, you see this idea that what you do and the life you're living and the spiritual realities are all intertwined. Ephesians chapter six, remember when Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Well, obviously it is. I mean, if you're a Christian and you're being persecuted by the Roman Empire and they're killing you, well, obviously there are people doing this. But what he's saying is, it's not just those events, but it's against the evil forces in the spiritual realm. What's he saying? All of this is connected together. That's what Revelation is saying, is you're seeing these events of the Messiah being born and Herod trying to kill him, but it's saying this is all part of the battle that Satan is trying to be God. And so, he wants to kill him. This is Herod trying to kill Jesus. But the child was caught up to God and his throne. What's that talking about? Well, it's a real shortened form of the story, but you and I both know that despite Satan's efforts to kill Jesus and ultimately is successful in getting him crucified and then the resurrection and God brought him back up to take his rightful seat on the throne and Satan is like totally defeated in this. We've talked about this before, but bottom line, these two phrases, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the story of the gospel. Satan says, I'm gonna thwart this, I'm gonna kill the Messiah, you're not gonna redeem these people and then Jesus ends up, he's like, oh my goodness, I never saw that coming. He's gonna die for these people. He's not gonna rule, he's gonna die for these people out of love and be raised uh, to the heavens. And so the woman fled and was into a place that was prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So God's gonna preserve 
the woman. And so now the woman is going to kind of undergo a little bit of a change. This is God's people, Israel, but after Jesus, you're gonna see the woman start to take on God's people, those who are faithful to Jesus Christ. Okay. <clears throat> I wanna talk about this spiritual battle idea just a little bit, and I wanna give you some other passages. So this is Satan battling God by trying to kill the Messiah. In Colossians, it says this, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so God triumphs over, there's a sense in which the cross and the resurrection, not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection was a triumph over Satan. And he took, it goes on to say, he took the deed to your and my soul and nailed it to the cross and Satan realized that he has been defeated. So at the cross, Satan is defeated. He's not done, but he's doomed. Does that make sense? That's by the way, I wanna add a little aside. A lot of people will say that Satan was bound at the cross and there's some truth in that a lot of different ways to look at it, but fundamentally, think of Satan was defeated at the cross. He cannot win, he cannot become God, and he cannot ultimately rule this world because Jesus has successfully redeemed us, and it's only a matter of time before God, think about this passage in Philippians 2. At the tail end, it talks about how Jesus emptied himself, became a human, became obedient even to death, death on a cross. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and everyone would confess that he is Lord of creation, not Satan. The cross defeated Satan. He's not done causing mischief, but he is doomed at the cross. Then in, uh, Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the armor of God. In other words, you are doing battle with the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Take up the armor of God. Notice it doesn't say, just be really good and gosh, I hope you can beat the devil. No, it says you take up the armor of God. You take up the faith. You take up the word of truth. You, you guys know the armor of God, right? If not, that's a VBS lesson. All right, so the, it's really interesting in chapter 12 to see how to, we sort of take a pause from the, from the tribulation and we go back and say, now let me remind you what this whole story is about. And so the dragon comes into this story and as he comes in, you get his biography everything about him. The woman comes in and you see that God is working. You get the whole story of redemption and you get the gospel, literally, in that little piece, okay? So chapter 12 is sort of a step back and look at the whole panorama of what's going on. It continues. It says, the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now this is really interesting. Listen to this, this is a hymn. 
and I heard a loud voice in heaven. So he, John sees this vision of the dragon with seven heads and seven diadems and 10 horns. This guy thinks he's God. And here's the woman who's about to give birth. And oh my gosh, is the dragon gonna destroy this baby? No, he doesn't. Unbelievable, God preserves the baby through it. And the dragon fights and is thrown down to the earth. And then all of a sudden you get this song about look what God did, he is one. I want you to understand that the events, he's looking back and he's saying, we're about to talk about some more tribulation stuff and we're really heavily gonna get into Satan and the antichrist and the false prophet for the rest of the tribulation. But before we get into that, God wants to remind us and shows John the vision that, oh, by the way, he isn't what he thinks he is and he already got defeated at the cross. And so if you're a Christian reading this, you go, yes, oh my goodness, all these bad things are happening. Oh, you're telling me that Satan is behind this. He's always been behind this. Ever since the garden, he's been fighting God. Oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? And then it pauses and says, by the way, let me just remind you of something. He's already doomed. He's kicked out of heaven and it won't be long. He's gonna be destroyed from the earth. This is really powerful for us because we too live in a time where there are powers in the spiritual realms that work themselves through powers of oppression on the earth. And it's not just uh, Christians being oppressed and being killed for their faith, that happens in our world, but it's also Satan does not want you to be joyful. Satan does not want you to have a, have a good life as a Christian. Satan wants to make your life difficult, remember? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Oh my gosh, that's so true, isn't it? Satan really does want to make you turn away and don't trust God anymore. And yet, he says, I've overcome Satan. And Revelation says, remember, at the cross, he was humiliated, you were freed, and he is doomed. Does this make sense? You see the Bible tying together around this? So Revelation isn't just some, oh my gosh, that's a dreamy book, it's holding together, it fits in all the rest of the Bible, okay? So it's a beautiful little hymn, so I'll read this. And then John said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, three adjectives, divine number, the real power, the real salvation, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, Christ, have come for the accuser of our brothers. The word Satan is not a name, it's a title. It's in Hebrew, it's Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. Satan is here to watch you, tempt you, and then blame you before God. He is the accuser of our brothers. He has been thrown down the one who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him. You have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony because they didn't love their lives even to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, not just rejoice the earth. What you do here reverberates in the spiritual realm. The heavens are rejoicing. Do you remember, I wanna emphasize this point. Remember when Jesus said, and some of you, by the way, I know I keep saying you remember, you remember, and some of you said, you know, I haven't even read the New Testament. 
hey, join the club. That's exactly where I was. I did not become a Christian early, didn't go to VBS, never seen a flannel graph in my life. But it's all there to read for you. And I just don't have time to fill in all the stories, but I want you to know that in the New Testament, when Jesus is teaching, he talks about the idea that when one sinner comes to Christ, the angels in heaven rejoice. So I, I really, this is kind of a side point, but it's too big to just be a side point. What you do in this realm, your faithfulness to God reverberates all the way to heaven. Remember we saw the souls of the, of the Christians when they call them saints, Those are just, that's us, we're saints, the holy ones, the ones that are dedicated to God. That their souls were there because they'd been killed because of their testimony, because they said, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and they were killed for that. They're killed for being Christians. And yet, their faithfulness, that scene is taking place in heaven. And God says, I will do justice on the earth because of your faithfulness. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but what you do, even those little mundane acts of faithfulness, the little forgivenesses you do, the, the things that you do that demonstrate you love God, uh, all those things, and when you let the Spirit continue to mold you in the image of Christ, being faithful to follow Christ, those actions reverberate in the spiritual realm. You have overcome Satan just by your faithfulness here to God. This is a powerful thing. And so rejoice, O heavens, and all you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth, because the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan knows he has been defeated. He knows that his des desire to be God will never happen. He no longer has a claim on you. He says, I've got all their sins, and Jesus said, and I paid for every one of them. You don't, there's no mortgage on their soul anymore. You are free and Satan is doomed, and he is angry, but he knows all I can do now is wreak havoc because I cannot defeat these people. I could kill your body. I could get some of my minions to kill your body. That's happening in some places in the world, and it may happen again. It certainly happened in the Roman Empire right after this book was written for over 200 years. He's like, I could kill your body. That's all I can do. I can't change your destiny. I can't change that you are gonna live eternally with Christ. You see how, the, I want you to get a sense that the whole Bible fits together and this is the capstone. It connects the dots with the Bible, okay? So the devil knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Well, pay attention to this because now the woman's gonna change from faithful people of God in the Old Testament to faithful people of God after the Messiah, okay? But he said he pursued the woman who had, been given, who had given birth to the Messiah and the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. So a time is one year, times, plural, two years and a half a year. So there's another three and one half years. She is going to be preserved through, if you're a futurist, 
through the second half, the great tribulation. In other words, Satan is gonna kill a lot of Christians in the tribulation. There is nothing he can do to their souls. God holds them. Remember in John it says, I have, Jesus says, no one can snatch my sheep from my hand. In other words, these people are secure. He may kill your body, but you are secure in eternity. Satan's power is temporary. And Satan doesn't have any ultimate power over your soul or over your, your body. This is another kind of important lesson. One of the lessons being that what happens to you here and what you do here, when you sin, that reverberates through, through eternity. It has a cost to it. And when you are faithful, that has repercussions and ripples in the spiritual realm, and it just defeats Satan. But the other thing that happens is you might say to yourself, why then do we suffer the, the chaos and the havoc of evil in this world? And what you see happening with this woman is you and I and this woman and everybody just wait till chapter 21 and 22 and you're gonna see that everything gets made new and everything gets made right but it's not yet the time. And this is the interesting thing, is that God is with us through our trials. He does not always preserve us from our trials. Why? Is it because he doesn't love us? Heaven forbid. Who could possibly read this and think God doesn't love you more than you could possibly imagine? It's just that once we begin to serve him, we become part of his plan. There are, just take a simple view of this. If you're a futurist, there are people in the tribulation who are going to repent. And God says, you may need to go through some suffering, but take heart. Satan can only do what Satan can do, and no one can snatch you from my hands. So if you're a Christian undergoing tribulation, you read this book a lot, because you want to be reminded of this truth and of the truth of all the Bible. Question. Okay. Um, let's talk about the woman a little bit. So 1,260 days, why 1,260 days? <clears throat> well, 1,260 days in three and a half years and time, times, and half a time are the same thing. This is, okay, so I think I understand what you're asking here, is what is the significance of the three and a half years? If you're a futurist, the reason that the 1,260 days is, is because this happens in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, three and a half years in, and this whole thing's gonna be done in three and a half more years in the future. Christ is gonna come again, and then the millennium's gonna start, and we'll talk about that later. But bottom line is, this is gonna end in three and a half years. So it's a literal time of unbelievably intense persecution that's gonna happen. If you're not a futurist, you understand three and a half years as a fixed period of time that's relatively short, meaning in the big scheme of eternity, it's relatively short. So maybe you think that the church is being preserved all the way through the church age from all the people that have always tried to kill Christians, the Roman Empire and the Huns and the Ottoman Turks and all the forces. But three and a half years is a symbolic for that time period. So however you, you look at the three and a half years, very literal time or symbolic of a short period of time that the woman, the people of God, will indeed be pursued and persecuted by the devil. I, th I think I understood that question. Hopefully that was a good answer. Okay. 
So if that's the case with the woman, then are we talking about that the cross or the resurrection is the middle of the tribulation, which would mean that we're already in the millennium? Okay, let me sort that out a little bit. I, I get the question, it's a very good question. So at the, remember, chapter 12 is a flashback to the whole Bible. Clearly calling up Genesis chapter three, saying, remember that whole thing when I said that you never understood about the woman and have enmity between you and her descendants and he's gonna crush your head and you're gonna bruise his heel, you're gonna crucify him and he's gonna destroy you. That's what that meant. Nobody knew what that meant. Now it's like, you remember what that? Okay, watch. That's what happened at the cross and Satan was defeated, okay? If you want to understand this in a very chronologically linear way, you would say, well, that event happened at the cross and here we are in the middle of the tribulation, so the cross must be the middle of the tribulation. I get that. No one reads it like that. And the reason no one reads it like that is that there's, this piece is not considered chronologically linear. In other words, when you look at this and it starts out with the woman and the, and the great dragon and the serpent, you realize chapter 12 is clearly a flashback into pulling the whole story together. So you might say the two witnesses happened right in the middle of the tribulation and you might say in chapter, and you probably will, in chapter 13 when the Antichrist shows up, that's happening in the middle of the tribulation. But chapter 12, I guess the best answer I can give you in a short time is chapter 12 is broadly understood as take a step back and let me remind you of the whole big picture of what's going on here. So I understand the question, I would just say, People broadly understand chapter 12 as, okay, let's pull back for a second. I wanna talk about the whole big story here. Okay, going back to Genesis three, who are the serpent's offspring that are referred to? Great question. So the, the, your descendants and her descendants, two ideas on this, and it doesn't really matter which one you believe, you get to the same place. One would be, remember all those demons fallen angels, rebellious angels that came with him, those are his people, so to speak. But another way of looking at it is, who are the people who have decided to serve Satan? Now, it's not like somebody gets up in the morning and says, you know what, I just really don't like being a Christian, I think I'm gonna serve Satan. I hear they have a ton of fun. And uh, there's some great deals, you know, I get a $100 Amazon gift card if I sign up with Satan, you know. Okay, nobody does that, right? But the point of the Bible is, is that when you sin, you're effectively saying, I love me more than I love you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you know what, I think I'll be my own God. And Satan goes, <laughs> so you think you're gonna serve me because you don't have him anymore because you just left. Does that make sense? And so another way of looking at it is Satan's descendants, Satan's people are all of the souls that he has acquired through sin. So any way you look at it, anybody who's allied with Satan, and the New Testament's really clear that when we were not redeemed by Jesus' blood, we were aligned with Satan, whether we realized it or not, that we were, you are either a follower of Jesus Christ submitted to the Lord of the universe, or you are in rebellion against the Lord of the universe. So that's generally the way people understand that prophecy, is Satan's people and 
the people of God? Good question. What does it mean? What does it mean when it says the child will rule with an iron rod? Yeah, that is kind of a code phrase. Uh, think way, 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 way back in history. You know, to rule with an iron rod was base. Iron was really powerful stuff. You know, in the Iron Age, think about that. You got swords, you got stuff way better than the Stone Age. But it's so it's kind of a symbol of power. A king would have a a rod of iron. It's strong. It's powerful. In those days, it was unbreakable. I mean, that's the idea that comes with it. And so, in the Psalms and others, when places when they're talking about the Messiah, they'll say he's going to rule with a rod of iron. They're using an earthly analogy to talk about he's going to be the great king, the king of kings, like the real king of all the earth. So that little phrase showing up here is intended, as so many things are in the book of Revelation, the woman and the stars, is intended to say, remember Joseph's dream? Remember all those prophecies about the Messiah? That's who I'm talking about. It's almost a little shorthand, because if you think about it, chapter 12 tells the whole story of the, the battle of creation and the fall of humanity and the battle against Satan and the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, tells the whole thing in just a few sentences. And it does that sort of by using shorthand references. So to say, he will rule with a rod of iron, they go, oh, you're talking about the Messiah. Oh, this woman just had the Messiah. Oh my gosh, she must be Israel. And oh, Satan was the one trying to stop her. We thought that was Herod. Yes, it is. Yes, it's Herod and yes, it's Satan. So it uses kind of the shorthand Old Testament references. Probably more than two-thirds of the verses in the book of Revelation have some connection with the Old Testament. That's why, okay, this is an aside, as long as we're here, I often teach that all the things that happened to God's people in the Old Testament really happened in history, but they happened to God's people so that you and I could understand what the gospel is all about. You read the book of Revelation, you go, if God hadn't done this with the Israelites through all those years, if he hadn't had the Messiah, if I didn't know that, I have no way of understanding this story. You understand this story because of everything God did with the Israelites, okay? If you don't get that part, never mind. That was an aside, but you see here that revelation builds on everything God did throughout history to get here. Yeah. Okay, what is the dispensational view here and is that an Orthodox Christian view? Yeah, I'm gonna hold the idea of a futurist divide into a lot of categories. Again, I'm painting with a broad brush because you know we only have one semester to get through this. But basically, I want you to think about futurists as falling into two camps. And so you'll get uh, historic premillennialists. We'll talk about what that is in a little bit. And you get dispensational premillennialists. And I'll talk in great detail about what is the difference and why does it matter. Dispensationalists will understand some of this a little bit differently than I've explained it to you. But I don't really don't want to confuse the issue at this point. Dispensationalists fundamentally see the role of Israel as, okay, here's the simplest way to put it, and, and it's not fair, so don't write me nasty emails, but basically, a futurist would say, you got Israel, 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 then you've got the Messiah, and now, guess who the woman is? 
all the faithful followers of Christ, okay? God's people were the children of Israel. Now God's people, Allah, they could be Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. They could be Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ, but it's the followers of Jesus Christ. Dispensationalists, a little more complicated. Yes, they're Christians. Dispensationalist view is orthodox. And when I say orthodox, I don't mean all these views are entirely correct. I mean, it may be at some point we get to heaven and we go, oh man, I thought that preterist view was right. Turns out it wasn't. It was a futurist view. Not a salvation issue. Very reasonable way to understand the scriptures. So when I say orthodox, I mean, you could reasonably understand that. That's not going to jeopardize your salvation. It doesn't violate any commandments. Gnosticism, that's not orthodox. That says, I can do whatever I want with my body. I can do all the sexual immorality I want. All that matters is my soul. That's wrong. That's not orthodox. That violates the truth of the scriptures. These views don't. I don't consider dispensationalism to violate the truth of the scriptures. And what it says is, yes, you've got the church, but God's not done with Israel yet. And Israel's gonna come back into this story. The Jews are gonna be back in this story. Oh man, that creates some interesting fireworks. Now, whether you realize it or not, most of what you've probably been taught or read or saw on TV is actually kind of a dispensational futurist view. And so when we get to that point, I'll, I'll point the highlights out. But just for that questioner, in my view, it is orthodox view. Uh, it, however, does have some differences, a little differences in what I'm telling you. And of course, everybody would argue some of these details. I'm just trying to make this understandable and give you broadly, everybody fundamentally agrees with what I've told you. This is the story of redemption. Satan is doomed. Satan is done. I mean, those are broadly agreed upon things. The nuances are a little different. Like, you know, wh where is the woman going to be held for 1,260 days? Is being saved on the wings of an eagle, is that going to be the United States intervening in a war against Iran and Russia and all? Or is that a phrase talking about? I mean, people are going to disagree on these details, but I really don't want to immerse us in so many details we miss the main point. But feel free to ask any questions. I'm happy to talk about those things, but hopefully we'll get the big, big point. Okay? So chapter 12 is one of my favorite chapters. I mean, you read it, and I hope when you read it now, you go, you know what, this is kind of code. Not code, maybe shorthand. And it's intended to be, oh my goodness, this is telling me the whole story all the way from Genesis to the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, it is. It's stepping back. It said, now, by the way, before you get discouraged, just remember what we're dealing with here. Satan is doomed. And that's a powerful idea. So then, what comes uh, next? It says, well, then when the dragon realized that he couldn't uh, destroy the woman, Israel, couldn't destroy the Messiah, he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who are the descendants of the woman? You have Israel and the Messiah and now what we call the church. I'm just gonna call all the followers of Jesus Christ. And so what's Satan doing from this point on? This is setting up chapter 13. Now you're gonna understand, oh, I see why what's happening in the second half of the tribulation is happening. It's the continuation of this story. Otherwise, it would get weird. Now at least you know where it fits in the plot, right? So what's Satan doing? He said, I couldn't stop the Messiah. 
I couldn't destroy Israel, tried my best, couldn't get rid of them, couldn't get rid of the Messiah, I'm gonna kill all these Christians. And sure enough, right after this is written, you got 200 years of the Roman Empire trying to stamp out Christianity. But just like the point of this is Satan is defeated. He cannot win now. He is not done. Roman Empire tried to kill, killed hundreds of thousands of Christians. And yet what happened? 200 years later, the Roman Empire, would you believe it, becomes a Christian nation. That's like putting the exclamation point. Do your worst, Satan, because you are doomed and you cannot win. Even history is jumping out, putting the exclamation point on this saying, you cannot win. When you try to stamp out Christianity in China, and believe me, it's been tried several times uh, since the uh, creation of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, Christianity has grown in China. I want you to, how do I make sense of that? This is how you make sense of that. Because Satan is defeated, he's going to do his worst, and he's going to lose. And that's why you cannot destroy, quote, the church, meaning those who are faithful to Jesus Christ. But what's he doing? Well, now you know. He's been, for quite some time, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Well, that turns out to be really important because I want you to hold this thought for two weeks. Catch your breath, get ready, gird your loins. Good old biblical statement. I have no idea what it means, but do that. Basically, so he goes, he decides, I'm gonna kill all these Christians, and he's standing on the sea. Why is he standing on the sea? Because in chapter 13, something unbelievably nasty is gonna come out of the sea, and you're gonna meet him and call him the Antichrist. We'll meet him in two weeks. I'll see you guys then.